everybody. We're a little bit late this weekend, but this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and each week I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. So the other week out on the boat, we're about 10 miles or so offshore from the closest island, and we had an unexpected visitor join us out on the boat. We had a little dark-eyed junco land on the bow, hopped around, ate some of the spiders that hung around the boat, and it actually ended up uh, joining us for the rest of the day. It was apparently a very tired little bird. It took quite a few short little naps on the boat with us. And while the junco was with us, we also saw a yellow rumped warbler fly around the boat. It landed a couple of times, but just as warblers do, it landed real quick and then flew off. But we also saw quite a few other small birds flying around that I didn't get a good enough look at to identify. Being that far out, we really don't expect to see small songbirds. We're really nowhere near their usual habitats. But there were a couple of hurricanes recently and just some strong windstorms that uh, moved through. So we were originally thinking that some of them may may have been blown offshore, but it's also migration time. Quite a few birds, like the Arctic terns we talked about last year around migration time in episode 29, do travel over water during their migrations, but that's also a seabird. And most of the birds that travel over the ocean, as far as we know, are seabirds, like the terns, gulls, gannets, and even puffins spend really their whole lives out on the water. These birds are very well equipped for ocean flying, and they can sit on the water for rest, whereas songbirds can't. So are we seeing these small birds out there because they were blown offshore? Or are we witnessing in person a normally unobserved migration path? My episode title is likely going to be a bit of a spoiler, but today we're going to look into these small songbirds and their transoceanic fall migrations. So in my research, I wasn't able to find any known evidence of juncos or yellow-rumped warblers having over-ocean migrations. But it turns out that several songbirds do have documented transoceanic migration. So in this case, by transoceanic, I mean a long two to three day flight um, just straight across the Atlantic Ocean from the northeast or from the North American coast down through the Caribbean to South America. There are other areas, though, where we do see birds having transoceanic flights. So while we will be focusing on the Atlantic, there are some birds that have been documented flying across the Pacific Ocean, and there are some birds like the black kite that have been documented migrating across the Mediterranean Sea. Oceans have previously been considered a huge barrier for the movement of land birds, but turns out this may not be the case. Three songbirds have been very well documented flying across the Atlantic Ocean using small geolocators. Geolocators allow researchers to follow the birds as they fly, essentially, so we can actually have record of their flight path instead of just a starting and ending location that we get with regular bird banding. Blackpole warblers, Connecticut warblers, and bobolinks all have documented transoceanic migrations through their fall migration, and these have actually been hypothesized for decades. People on ships in the Atlantic Ocean have seen these birds join them regularly during fall, really through decades, even since Christopher Columbus's time. And every year they tend to show up in Bermuda in numbers unusual for anywhere else in these birds' habitat. 
So these clues have led researchers to believe that these birds do have a transoceanic migration, but it wasn't until we had the technology to make really small geolocators to attach to birds without without being a large disruption to their flight that we are able to that we are co- able to confidently prove that these birds do have this long flight in their as part of their migration. So why is this migration particularly uh, spectacular for these birds? We talked about how these paths are not unusual for seabirds, so why is it so spectacular that these birds are doing this? For one, these birds are tiny. The Blackpool Warbler was the first warbler whose transatlantic migration path was officially documented using geolocator tags back in 2015. Blackpool Warblers are small black and white warblers about 12 grams or 5.5 inches tall. If you are familiar with birds, uh, these these warblers are even smaller than house sparrows, and house sparrows are, while they're big for a small bird, they're not very big at all. So these birds are quite small, and looking at them, you wouldn't think that they would be well-equipped for a straight, non-stop flight across the ocean. One researcher in the 1980s even tried to completely shoot down the idea of this bird having the migration path, saying that it was crazy to think that such a small bird would be able to make such a flight. So for a long time, these birds were flying from their breeding grounds in the northern North America, mostly Canada, down to their wintering grounds in South America, and we didn't really know how they got there. However, in 2015, DeLuca published their work on geotagged uh, geotagged blackpole warblers and confirmed what the years of observations on ships and radars hinted to. They recorded birds leaving the Northeast United States, um, or Northeast North America, ranging from Long Island to Nova Scotia in Canada. They arrived in the, the birds arrived in the Caribbean about two to three days later. In order to get there, these birds flew 2,270 to 2,770 kilometers over the Atlantic Ocean in a straight flight path to Hispaniola and Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. In miles, that's about 1,400 to a bit over 1,700 miles flying without stop. So this migration path is considered to be one of the longest nonstop overwater flights for migratory songbirds. But note, this study really only included birds that were breeding in the northeast. So what about blackpole warblers in northwest North America? Were these birds also joining in the transatlantic flight? Or did they follow a completely different path? So DeLuca actually went back out into the field to figure it out, and turns out these birds do follow the same transatlantic path, making for a total migration of 10,700 kilometers to to 69,000 kilometers. They take about 18 days to fly across North America to make it to the Atlantic coast, and then they joined in on the Atlantic flights. These birds tended to take a little bit longer on average to complete their flight, still about minimum of two days, but some took as long as four days to complete their oceanic journey. For some of these western birds, they were on their migration path for a total of 60 days from start to finish, in, um, starting in Alaska, ending in Colombia and Venezuela in South America. Next we have the Connecticut warbler. And as we found out, the Connecticut warbler actually follows a very similar path to the Blackpole warbler, 
and is actually sometimes observed joining them in their migrations. But the interesting thing with the Connecticut warbler is that really until we were able to fit them with the geolocating tags, we just had no idea what their migration path was. So they really, so they kind of just disappeared from their breeding grounds in Northeast North America. And they just kind of showed up in South America. And like the Blackpool warbler, we did have some idea of how they got there through some observations on ships offshore and um, radar and all that good stuff. But the Connecticut warbler was a complete mystery. They are a much more elusive warbler. They tend to live in more marshy habitats that are a little harder for researchers and birders to get to. So that does contribute a little to the mystery. Connecticut warblers are slightly bigger than the Blackpool warbler, more often in the 13 to 15 gram range. They have a nice yellow belly, olive green, yellow colored back, and a nice gray head. Now, even before migration time, um, they're described as plump. But after their fuel up for migration, one uh, researcher I found referred to them as excessively fat, which sounds a little bit rude, but that really just means they're ready for an extended flight. These birds really do need to pack on the fat to have the energy to fuel a multi-day non-stop flight across the ocean. So much like the black pole warblers, the Connecticut warbler flies for about two days non-stop, resting in the Caribbean islands before it moves on towards the Atlantic basin. In those two days, they're covering 1,700 to 2,400 kilometers, depending on where they leave the North American coast. And after their rest, they're flying another 600 to 800 kilometers just to get to South America. For both the Blackpool Warbler and the Connecticut Warbler, their, their small size really makes these extended open water migrations particularly spectacular. Now, our third bird that we are going to talk about that does this, we have the Bobolink, which for the next little bit, I'm pretty sure I put Bobolink in like every single sentence, so you can feel free to count how many times I say it. So the bobolink follows a slightly different path over the Atlantic Ocean. The bobolink is a bigger bird than the two warblers, averaging about 30 grams and is about the size of an American robin. Bobolinks are reflated to blackbirds, and males are mostly black, but they do have some white accents on the wings and rump, and a nice yellow area covering the back of their head. So how is bobolink migration? different than the Blackpole and Connecticut Warbler. So the Bobolink does not take a break in the Caribbean. It actually flies completely nonstop from North America to its wintering grounds in South America, making for quite the migration, especially for a songbird. In a study by Perlou in 2018, 13 birds were fitted with geolocators and they flew, or 13 birds fitted with geolocators flew for anywhere from one to five days covering 1,098 kilometers to a bit over 3,500 kilometers in that time. However, some bobolinks have been recorded stopping on the Galapagos Islands on the way to Venezuela, meaning that for some birds leaving from Southern California, their migration could very well exceed 5,000 kilometers. And that was just in the study that I read. But for some bobolinks, they may travel a total of 20,000 kilometers to and from their wintering grounds every year, or about 12,500 miles. So this is actually, um, that data actually would make the bobolink 
having some of the longest migrations really of all of the birds. And for a bird that only weighs 30 grams and is about the size of a robin, that's, that's nothing to sneeze about. Even for larger birds, flying uh, across the world in a couple of days is really quite something. So interestingly, these birds only take this oceanic migration path during fall migration. For at least most of these birds, as far as we know, once it comes time for spring migration, they take a path over land to get back to their breeding grounds. So how do such small birds handle these crazy long migrations? They can't rest on the open ocean, so once they fly, they can't stop, and their really small wings aren't designed for efficient ocean journeying. So all things considered, this sounds like a really bad idea. So first of all, they often fuel up to gain quite a bit of weight for migration. Blackpool warblers, for example, normally average about 20 grams, but before they leave for migration, some of them can weigh in at a hefty 16.6 grams. And that's a pretty impressive weight gain for a tiny little bird. It was also noted that only the heftiest of the birds seem to leave from the farthest northeast areas. Smaller birds or younger birds that just might not be as prepared for the long journey uh, are sometimes observed leaving for migration farther south on the North American coast, so they don't quite have the extremely long journey across the ocean that some of the more prepared birds would have. A lot of these birds also take advantage of prevailing winds over the ocean to help propel them along the way. When they initially take off from the North American coast, the westerlies help to carry them off to sea, kind of taking them over to Bermuda, and once the winds shift, the northeastern trade winds help to carry them the rest of the way to the Caribbean. So it does still take a lot of energy to flap their little wings enough to get there, but taking advantage of these winds is going to make their flight a lot more efficient and a bit less energy intensive. So for each of these birds, they're regularly observed around Bermuda between August and October, which lines up with the time frame of fall migration. As it turns out, because of hurricanes and storms at sea, birds that spend their winters in South America almost always end up landing in Bermuda at some point during their fall migrations. This pattern of observations has allowed researchers to use citizen science data from birdwatchers submitting sightings to the eBird database to find other birds that have transatlantic migrations during the fall, which really highlights the importance of having this database of birding observations. It's impossible for researchers to be everywhere all the time, and there's not always funding to just to fit uh, geolocating tags on birds and all that good stuff. So it's really good that we can take advantage of the presence of birders just being everywhere. So using eBird data, researchers at Cornell were able to figure out that in addition to the Blackpole Warbler, Connecticut Warbler, and the Bobolink, the Yellow and Black-bellied Cuckoo, the Cape May Warbler, Bicanel's Thrush, and the American Golden Plover also have transatlantic routes. So there are a lot of songbirds where their fall, mi fall migrations are still a mystery or we don't have all of the details figured out. So it's possible that there are even more birds that take this route and we just don't know. It's important that we uncover these paths so that we can create better conservation plans and have better understandings of the existence of these birds. Hopefully, with the constantly growing database of bird observations we have because of citizen science, we'll be able to learn more about bird migrations and different migration paths. Who knows? 
Maybe one day the dark eyed junko will join the list of songbirds with a transoceanic migration path. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and be sure to tune in to next week's episode in a couple of weeks. We'll be having our Halloween episode talking about the myths and legends of black cats. So be sure to tune into that, and any friends that have that love cats or anyone that needs to be turned on to their love of cats, share that episode with them. There are a lot of ways you can support this podcast. One of the best ways is to share the podcast with all of your friends and family that need to know more about the oceanic flights of really tiny birds, but you can also rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, as well as Podbean, and you can find the podcast on Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and really just about wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you have the ability to support this podcast financially, for about the price of a small cat bandana, you can become a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash quirkycreepyfreakypod. You can also find the podcast on Instagram, so give that a follow at quirkycreepyfreakypod. And we have a Facebook page now as well, and that is just quirky, creepy, and freaky. If you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com, and it may just make it into an episode. Audio editing and recording is done by me, and the intro music was created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening.